Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am your host, Joe Devine, and I am joined today by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hi, Joe. Hello. And Alex Stewart. Hi. Hello to you. Uh, everything well? Yep, all good. Fine. Let's talk about Wolves. Uh, today we're talking about Wolves. I'm quite excited about this one because there's lots of interesting things uh, to say. Let's start by saying, of course, 2016, I believe it was, Wolves were, uh, were purchased by Fosun International, a big Chinese company. Uh, they've got one of the coolest managers in the league. They're on the money to finish, oh, what, sixth or seventh, probably, a toss-up between them and Watford. It's, it's very congested in that part of the league, so um, depending on when you listen to this, let's not commit to a position just yeah, yet. Yeah, we won't commit uh, to any of that, yeah. No, no. no. Uh, but they play exciting football, and uh, as far as their uh, ownership structure and ambition goes, they wanted to become one of the biggest clubs in the world, and uh, two years, three years down the line, it's not going so badly, is it? So we're going to talk about all of these things. Um, I think we're also going to talk about George Mendes because I'm fascinated by that situation, as I imagine listeners are too. Um, I don't know how much we know about it. Uh, I know nothing, so I'm going to ask you, Seb, but uh, we'll come to that. We'll come to that later. Um, so I suppose the first thing to do is, well, let's start with the football side of things. Um, have you seen them play this season, Seb? Yeah, I've seen a lot of them play. I've, I've, actually, I, I, Joe, Molyneux has probably become one of my favourite grounds in the league. It's... Uh, um, Wolverhampton's a great place to to spend time, but it's just a um, because of the atmosphere around the club and sort of how that feeds into the ground and the atmosphere. It's just a it's a great place to to to, to go to at the moment. And what is your overall impression of? Them? I mean, I'm assume having seen them a few years ago, seeing them now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your overall impression of how the team has uh, evolved over the last few years? It's been quite a gentle evolution. So, sort of personal history. I went. Um, I first went there last season because. When it became obvious that they were coming up, I wanted to learn a little bit more about the place and the and the town. Um, I, I had a, had a conversation with Thomas Bohr, who um, who who runs the Wolves blog, and we were talking about sort of how um, what local attitudes were towards the team and, and the ownership structure. Um, and it was kind of it, it was very revealing because I I went down with some cynicism. I think like everybody else, I thought, well, yeah, you know. I, I was wrong about this, but I thought, okay, you got a lot of money, you bought a lot of players, George Mendes is involved there. This is kind of by the numbers success. But what it revealed is kind of um, it, it, what Thomas said was that sort of the 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 the, the local fans are, are, are taking great pride in the way that um, the, the team are playing. And there's this sort of there's almost there was at the time anyway there's a sort of disbelief at the not just the style of of play at Molyneux, but also you know some of the players that were there. You got to remember that I think the last time. Wolves came up to the Premier League. They had Carl Henry in midfield. And obviously this time they came up with Ruben Neves and added Giamatinho. Hey, Carl Henry was a great player. Though. No, Carl Henry was not a great player. I always Henry enjoyed watching Carl Henry. He was a, an absolute bastard. Of I a always enjoyed watching him play. Do you remember his tackle on Jordi uh, Gomez at the DW Stadium? Like It must have been I six or seven years ago. Look that up. Is that is that the one that was really bad? Because I remember he did a straight red, kind of almost sumptuously appalling tackle. Yeah, and I, Gomez sort of somersaulted out of it. Straight red, I think, after about half an hour of a game or something. It was, yeah. Just, just That's what I was saying. That's what he was doing. Yeah, well, yeah. And then left the field for good. So I'm not <laughs> sure how useful that marker was. Um, but yeah, we were, we, we were talking about the style before we, we started recording. And um, Alex made a point about how it hasn't really changed. They haven't done the Fulham thing of getting up and chucking away everything that worked at the, uh, you know, the lower level. They've kind of just added pieces to a structure, to a pre existing structure. And that really shows because I think I think what most people, even people that sort of only see Wolves on Match of the Day and you know a sporadic live Sky game, 
think what you associate with them is it, it all works. It's a, as a jigsaw, it fits together. It's very logical. Um, there's a lot of cohesion. I know it's a bit of a general, a, a generalization, but you know, that's how you describe them. It just, it is a very logical way of playing. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I, Alex, uh, I want to say, this isn't, I don't think I've ever asked you this before, but I was looking at, at Wolves top scorers this season before we started recording. Uh, no players are over 20, which I assume means that they, the team isn't reliant on one striker. Um, and also the other nice thing to say is that uh, Raul Jimenez, Di- uh, Diogo Yota, and is it Matt Doherty or Doherty? I assume Doherty. I've been saying Doherty, so maybe I'm wrong. Well, it's Doherty or Doherty. I mean, Apologies, Matt. I've been spelling his name right when I've been writing it. Yeah. So that maybe that's that's what matters. Yeah. Okay. Sixteen, eight, and seven goals apiece, but also uh, seven, seven or six assists for both of them, which is um, for all of them. Sorry, which uh, it's suggestive. I mean, you can scroll down the list further, and there are an awful lot of people contributing with goals. Um, it's suggestive of more, I assume, teamwork as opposed to there being a club which has one excellent striker and is totally reliant on them for goals? Um, I mean, I think Jimenez is is the kind of leading guy. Diego Jota, who plays as a second striker effectively, and in that regard, it's maybe not dissimilar to consider it in terms of how Newcastle use Salomon Rondon and Ayotso Perez together. They're, they're, they're different players. They perform similar sorts of roles for those two clubs. Um. They they are the focus of the Wolves' attack. So, you know, a lot of what happens is quick transitions that rely on getting the ball to them and then exploiting their movement. However, and again, this is something Seb and I were talking about before, um, the wingbacks are extremely dynamic. Mm. And Doherty does, Doherty, Doherty, does um, get forward a lot from that position and then make these driving angled runs in towards the box. Most of the goals he scores look exactly the same yeah. um, because he's making the same run in. They're also actually quite good from set pieces. I was looking at their goals um, last night and I think quite a few of the last uh, set have, have, have either come directly from a set piece or uh, in the sort of aftermath of a set piece. So again, that feeds into what Seb's saying. You know, this is a, it's a very well drilled functional but not in a bad way team that that it's been set up to play a certain kind of way using the strengths of certain players um and the the transfers that have been conducted in the summer have basically gone to augment that existing style and i think that shows uh, a, a team that has a sense of its identity and a really really smart coach you know it's interesting i, I know we're going to talk about george mendes later but it's one of the things you don't expect to find in a team in this situation because if you had a, a superficial knowledge of what Wolves are, uh, the ownership structure and the presumed role of Mendes, which is to park players, to let them appreciate and to shift them on, you wouldn't expect to find a team um, that fits together like this at the end of that because you'd think, right, you, you've got a lot of you know square pegs and round holes and, oh yeah, take this player because it's useful to me. What you've actually got is a very, very smart recruiting policy. Mm. Like I think... I mean, I, I, last night I was when we were doing, when I was doing my research, I, I I looked back over their transfer record, and I think that there are some players that have done better than others. There are no with maybe Adama Traore aside, there are no huge failures. There are no players that you think, and I wouldn't even describe him as a huge failure. I just personally don't like him as a footballer. I think he's um, not a waste of time, but just frustrating, maddening. Um, but sort of you have these players, some 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 like Johnny Otto, for instance. You think, good, you just really work in this system. Mm. Um, 
Willie Bowley as well, like the way they defend and their, Alex just talked about their reliance on, not reliance, but their, their strength at set pieces. You think that guy is a huge asset in both boxes. He's a great footballer actually with the ball on, on, on the floor, but a lot of players that you don't think, right, the, 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 these are just players that have been forced on a team and a manager. It all fits together. And yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a real novelty with a team that I have, you know, recently been taken over or recently come into money. You don't usually have that kind of, that weird maybe five-year period where it's like you're going down Bond Street having won the lottery. Be like, right, I have that one and that one and that one and that one and that one. And it just, it doesn't matter if it, it sort of, it works. We just, we, we, we have some exciting names on the pitch. Wolves are not like that. I think as well, if you look at that back line, you know, Ryan Bennett and Connor Cody have been at the club for quite some time, particularly Cody, as has Doherty. And so it's, it's assembling... It's assembling a backline that functions as a unit where the players that are brought in are moved in alongside players who aren't heralded. Who I mean, I, Cody, I think, was capped at under-21 level a few times. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, but is as close probably to the, uh, you know, an actual classic, almost libero style of player as you've got in the Premier League at the moment, which is bizarre, thinking that it's Connor Cody at Wolves. And then also the acquisition of Rui Patricio, who is an extremely competent, experienced international goalkeeper and was picked up, I think I'm right in saying, on a free. So there was that weird situation at, at um, Sporting Club, Lisbon. That's right, yeah, which they Where, took advantage so of. So initially he came in a free transfer, then there was some kind of arbitration. I think they ended up paying like 17, 18 million pounds for him. But yeah, it was a, they, they, yeah. But does, for, does it help when a goalkeeper is your coach to get good goalkeepers? I... I don't know, but I, but I think the, the thing with Patricio is that he, you know, he's got a lot of caps for Portugal who are a country that do produce decent goalkeepers. Um, he's played consistent Champions League football pretty much because Sporting were qualifying for the Champions League. He's played at international tournaments and a goalkeeper who is still in his early 30s, I think he's probably 31-ish, I would have to check, but um, but if Seb is looking him up as we speak, he is exactly thirty-one. There we go. Nice one. So that's that's a really really smart acquisition. And then alongside that, you know, players that they have spent, yeah, in some instances, considerable amounts of money on, are players that show potential, and in some instances, are already delivering on that potential. The obvious example of that is Ruben Neves. Yeah. Um, but Dendonka as well was a highly rated prospect um, over in Belgium. And, you know, again, Jota is, I think he was, with Jota, was there not a loan thing, which then... He initially came on loan, yeah. Yeah, but, the you know, these are players who... That was also the of, case with Jimenez, wasn't it? That's the case with a lot of them. So uh, yeah. Jimenez's loan deal has just been made permanent. Bolly was weeks. the same. Bolly was on loan from Porto. Johnny was on loan from Atletico Madrid. So, you know, it's quite common. That's how they do things. But that, I think that's a very sensible way of doing things because, you you know, you give the player... Um, of time to adjust there may be a financial fair play aspect to it i don't know i'm, I'm speculating yeah um but you're you're sort of you're allowing a player to take a few steps in the environment before committing to what in jimenez's case was a lot of money i think 30 million pounds to make his deal um from benfica permanent well let, let me expand the question about the coach uh nuno espirito santos who was santo. santo apologies i get confused because of the latin prayer um who was a goalkeeper, who, am I right in thinking, played for Mourinho? I don't know that, actually. Um, but why don't you guys fill quickly? Okay, well, it, I hope he did, um, because I was going to ask if there's any... We can, do the, we can do the segue anyway. I think he did. 
Um, I, I wanted to know uh, if there, if there's, if we see any influences of uh, of Mourinho in his play. Uh, I might I, be completely wrong. I mean, no, you're absolutely right. He did play under him at Porto yeah. uh, during a 2003 Taça de Portugal match against Vaz MSC. He was allowed by manager Jose Mourinho to convert a penalty kick. So it was just the one game. Uh, I don't know if it was just. No, he didn't. He didn't play much under. He he had six games at Porto under. Because I think the thing, the reason I think that is because I've read him talking about Mourinho before, um, and I just wondered if um, I might be. I'm mean, sure I'm completely I, off the point because I, Wolves don't appear to play like a Mourinho inspired side. But uh, I it's, s- talking about influences and and players going on to become coaches, we see we see this with. We've talked about the the etymology of Pep Guardiola as a coach before, and the influences he's taken places. You know, Carlos Bilardo, for example. Um, I just wondered if there's if there's any Mourinho in Wolves. I stylistically, I I I I I don't see it. I mean, I see. I mean, um, Santos is like a, a detail orientated coach, and I suppose in the abstract, that's what you could draw back to Mourinho. As a football team, no, I don't. I don't see any comparison. As a person, like if you're in press conferences with him, he, he's very engaging. He's a so maybe there. Not in the same way. Like Santo is not a, he does not want to cause controversy. He is not going to say things for effect. Like if, for instance, if um, Wolves actually, um, when, when for the you know, first part of the season, um, they're reliant on roughly the same group of players. He doesn't like changing his first 11. Um, and every now and again, when, when someone has been dropped in the, the games that I've been at, he's been asked about it. And he doesn't, he doesn't Luke Shaw the player. That sounds public, like, for instance, but that sounds like old school Mourinho, doesn't it? A small number of players who often play the, the, that, the eleven yeah, doesn't I, change I very often. That's what I mean. In I terms guess Mourinho of like, can't claim to. to no, to, it, that, that's what uh, we're yeah. trying to avoid. I think, like you, you could say that sort of very obviously, um, these Wolves players are loyal to him. They are um, have been kind of indoctrinated to the way he wants to play, and that's very early Mourinho at Chelsea and Porto, definitely. But in terms of how he handles himself and how he sets up his team, I, I personally don't see it. I think that's a really key distinction that you can look at whenever you're trying to work out the influences on coaches is that there are a number of distinct elements. One is tactical system. So, you know, no, he's playing three at the back, which I think Mourinho does like with a gun to his head, but otherwise (laughs) not. Um, But then there's also the methodology of training. There's the influence placed on match analysis and opposition analysis. And and so in, in that regard, I think maybe if you're somebody who has been exposed to an extremely thorough coach with a very programmatic, systematic method of training people, like Mourinho, who was introducing periodization at this time, and you know we, we talked about this a lot in the, the recent video that we did on Mourinho's Porto, that will rub off on somebody who becomes a coach, even if stylistically they don't you know, play the same way as Mourinho, because you're going to learn in that sort of environment. Maybe even learn what not to do. Well, that's the other thing is that you always, you know, influences are not just positive ones. You, mm-hmm. you, could, you could very easily say, you know, if you work with someone like Mourinho, well, what do you want to take from him? Thoroughness, preparation, building camaraderie within a squad. Jacket, what fashion selection. Don't you want to take from him? Being an asshole in press conferences and being unduly negative. So you're, you can learn both ways. Let me ask you then, off the Mourinho point, let me ask you about the back three. Um, this can be broader if need be, although you can apply it to Wolves if you choose. 
what's the benefit of a back three? Why do some, why do some, I mean, I know we, we talked about this quite a lot a couple of years ago when Antonio Conte arrived at Chelsea, started playing it. And at the time, for a period of months, it seemed to befuddle um, other teams in the Premier League, despite the fact that this has been an established way of playing for, for a long time. How do, why does it work on its own? And then maybe as an extension, why does it work for Wolves? Um, well, why does it work on its own is kind of dependent on who you're playing against. So, for example, an interesting point, something that Bielsa always used to do actually prior to Leeds, is that he would pick a four-man backline or a three-man backline, largely dependent on how many strikers the opposition were playing. So he would always have one man over. Wolves don't change. So they always have three, whether they're playing against one striker or two. Part of the reason for that is because Cody, while a defender, does also have responsibility for bringing the ball forwards. Bolly will often play very wide on the left, almost in a left-back position to allow um, Doherty Doherty to get forward. I'm just going to keep saying both of those things, Doherty Doherty, because I don't know which is right. Bowie Bowie. Uh, Yeah. Um, I mean, the benefits of a back three ordinarily are twofold, defensively speaking. One is that you should always have a spare man um, because one of the wing backs will drop back and cover a wide player. Then a centre back will pick up the centre forward. So even against a, a 4-3-3, I mean, you'll, you should be able to create a, a spare man, which is useful for passing, bringing the ball forwards, tracking midfield runs, that kind of stuff. The other thing is that that some formations suffer from a lack of natural width, so particularly a midfield diamond, um, sometimes even a 4-3-3 if the, the players that are playing wide tuck in a lot. That asks a lot from the fullbacks getting forwards, which is why if you're, you know, if you're Barcelona, it's fine, but sometime, some teams can't do that. Having three at the back gives you cover so that the wingbacks can push forwards and support those moves. So those, those are the two main advantages, really. Um, and you can also get away with a pure double pivot in midfield because there is that additional cover behind you. Okay. Go on, Seb, I think you had your hand no, up. No, well, I, Alex kind of covered it, but I, I think sort of from a, an aggressive standpoint, um, one of the advantages for Wolves specifically is where is their strength as a side? Their most talented players are in central midfield. Um, that sort of axis of Martino, Neves and Dendonka. Now, if you have three centre-halves and you're a team that wants to play with the ball, not just ping 50-yard diagonals, your access route into the cent- into central midfield is far easier with th- three centre-backs because whether you're pressing with one forward as an opposition or two, three centre-halves who can all play with the ball at their feet, that's very difficult to counter. Um, and so it's, it prevents you from being essentially locked into your own half for long periods. So it's a very useful, it's kind of like part of an exit strategy, I guess. And, and also, I think in that regard, and I, I agree absolutely with that, it also makes it very easy to retain possession uh, at the back and do what quite a lot of teams are doing now, which is to have very, very distinct ways of playing between the two halves. So a team is very content to retain possession and recycle it, swing it left to right, left to right, and wait for the strikers or the attacking midfielders to be able to generate sufficient movement and space between the lines to then transition very, very quickly. So it's a slow build-up and then a quick vertical delivery, and that, that is very Wolves. And again, if you're, if you're not relying on a midfielder to drop in and do that because you've got three centre-backs, it makes it easier, and it also then means you've got players who can support that move once that transition's occurred. I want to go back to the idea that... Uh... Nuno Espirito Santo is a, is a goalkeeper because mm-hmm. do you think if you spend your career stood behind footballers, outfielders, 
watching them play and uh, being coached separately from them, that that might give you, it might almost put you in the perfect position to go on to coaching because you've been, you've been watching something happen ahead of you uh, with more time, I suppose, throughout the game to, to observe it. I'm trying to think of other examples of this coaches is a thing. who are History says no. History says no. Like, there's also... I looked this up before. Brian McDermott, who was at Reading, mm-hmm. is a goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. And beyond that... Lopetegui was a goalkeeper, wasn't he? Lopetegui? Yeah. I think. Let me, but let me check that. But, but it's, it's a weird phenomenon in that it's, it's seldom the case. Mm. Uh, most goalkeepers, if they go into coaching, will go into coaching as either specialist goalkeepers or in the case famously of uh, Germain Burgos, who is C- uh, Simeone's number two at Atletico. Right. He's an assistant manager. Um, I don't know why goalkeepers don't tend to go into coaching because I think from what you're saying, or what you're saying does make sense because you have, you have a view of what's happening on the pitch, which can be quite instructive. And having played as a goalkeeper, you know, part of your job is to organise what's in front of you and, and be aware of opposition movement and your players' movement. However, goalkeepers are often a bit weird. Yeah. Walter Zenger. Like, obviously, like, the, fir- the first appointment for some mate was Walter Zenger, and that did not... Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that's Soft, a personality. Soft was a coach, wasn't he? Soft was a coach, but I mean, but I, I say... At a national like, level, maybe it's it a It may be a little bit different. M- Mourinho's I mean, dad. Well, Mourinho was a goalkeeper. But was Mourinho no, a goalkeeper? Mourinho was a defender. Mourinho played. Uh, yeah, Mourinho's a defender. Mourinho plays as a goalkeeper now. I think when he right. Felix, Felix Mourinho, who was Mourinho's dad, was a goalkeeper. That's it. So but we're I, also. But I think, I'm looking through a list of them now. We've also got Nigel Adkins. That's true. Back to back promotions. Um, yeah, managed Southampton. I don't know why I forgot him, but I do. I think. I think there is something in you know. Uh, Jonathan Wilson wrote an interesting book called The Outsider, which is about goalkeepers and. You know, they're, they are quite often a bit strange. And, and I do sometimes wonder whether a playing career in, in a situation, because remember, a lot of times goalkeepers, when they're actually training as players, they are training as a separate unit. So while all of the outfield players might be together doing drills and doing whatever, you know, goalkeepers are kind of among themselves. Catching like, balls. Catching balls. Catching balls and doing sit ups. Yeah. That seems to be all they ever do. You were a goalkeeper. Yeah. I was a goalkeeper. What were you, Seb? Oh, seriously! That's, three outsiders in weird. one room. That's why I'm. Explains why, why I feel so uncomfortable. Dynamics in there. are so strange. Uh, Leonard um, Slutsky, remember him? He was a goalkeeper. He, he was a Russian manager, wasn't Michelle he? Michel Prudhomme, like, yeah. one of the great underrated goalkeepers. I'm seeing. I'm, I'm, I'm cheating. I agree with that. Stanley yeah. Menzo. Slutsky was the one who recently described a referee as being basically like a waiter at a party. Okay. Yeah. Shilton, not a good manager, but I think time has revealed. Not the greatest person. Who is this chap? Raymond Guerthals. I don't know. I don't know that name. I don't know that name. Uh, Well, I'll tell you what. Let's find out. This is the beauty of the internet. Uh, Raymond uh, Guerthals was a Belgian football coach who led Marseille to victory in the UEFA Champions League final in 1993. Oh. Became the first coach to win the European trophy with a French club. He was a goalkeeper. Except Marseille were stripped of that title, weren't they? That's the thing. That's kind of been redacted from history. Yeah. uh... George Farm. (laughs) There's a guy called George Farr. I mean, that's got to be. I'm not the sure most this is making great podcasts. Just, I think just clicking is. on links on the internet and then talking about them. I think it is. It's something that listeners can research on their own. John Mellifeth. It's like a, what an interactive aspect to the podcast. Mm. Very nice. There's a lot of Belgian goalkeepers. Prudhomme was a brilliant goalkeeper. There was, there was there were a number of goalkeepers in the 80s who all had similarly kind of slightly floofy hair, like uh, Renat Dasseyev. <laughs> and and yeah. because. 
I don't know, they're in a period where football was maybe a little bit unfashionable and and they're sort of forgotten, but they were extraordinary players. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's finish off on, on tactics by asking Alex to explain Wolves tactically in uh, 30 seconds or less. Uh, three at the back, Neves drops deep to carry the ball and play long passes. They're looking to hit the channels, supported by the wing backs. Uh, Jimenez is more of a focal point. Jota drops off and moves around him. Uh, generally speaking, the midfield press is led by Dendonka and is pretty assertive. Mm-hmm. Very well drilled, very organised, play to their strengths and fun to watch. Okay, well, you're absolutely right. They haven't played before at the back at all, all season. Amazing that I would be right about that. Mm. It's no, almost like curious, I research it? it. Sometimes they do that. Sometimes, you know, yeah. just once. Just no, once. no the, on- the only change they make, and this is a change that, because I was saying before that, that they basically play the same as they did in the championship. Yeah. In the championship, they would at times be more aggressive and they play with a 3-4-3. So they'd have Jota on one side and then another player kind of tucking in and they, they, they would have therefore two effectively attacking midfielders in, in the half spaces um, to allow the wing backs still to overlap. They sometimes go to that towards the end of games, particularly if they're chasing a game. So against Southampton, I think they brought on Triori to add some kind of impetus and, and try and attack the, that space. but. They're a little more conservative now, so you'll see this sort of midfield three rather than a midfield two and, and a more attacking shape up front. Traore is such an oddity. Like he, I, I remember I was at the, um, at the, the game that when they lost uh, 3-2 to Spurs and um, Spurs were crumbling and had that game gone on for another 10 minutes, would probably have, have lost. On comes Traore and as an opposition fan, um, or in my case, like, you know, fan disguised as a journalist, there's no more terrifying prospect because he, he gets into so many positions. Mm-hmm. Like if he, you isolate him with a fullback, it, it's, it's almost unmanageable depending on who the fullback is. And yet there's something very reassuring because you know once he gets into position, he's going to make a bad decision. Mm. So maybe, I, I, I mean, I, I, I've seen all kinds of statistics which suggest he's going to evolve into a very good player. But he is just, if he played for my team, he would take years off my life. I think. He's, he's an insane outlier for successfully completed yeah. dribbles. Yeah. But it basically doesn't. But ultimately, so else. what? Like it's kind yeah, of like sure. you know, you you created the space, but you might as well not have. I mean, he he is he is. I I don't know a way of describing him really because there's so much there's so much obvious potential in what he could be because lightning, like you, lightning. Oh, lightning! Yeah, you, you can mean, never be precise with striking, but it, it's really flashy. That's very nice. That's very nice. I mean, I suppose to a degree, if you're chasing a game and you have other players that are intelligent off the ball and you have a kind of particular way of going forwards where the creation of space for those players is a good thing, then bringing on Traore does... I suppose at least sort of, sow the seeds of like you know, a chaos. How we, yeah, exactly. Basically, break the game up a little Just bit. Just like give give an opposition, give a give a back four or back three something else to think about. But I think then the only the only goal I've I've seen him create was the last minute equalised against Newcastle, which depending on which side of the fence you sit, probably shouldn't have counted. Like his kind of his big loopy ball that ended up um, that that Dubrovka dropped. Yeah, uh, I can I can see both sides. He's of why he's that not in, he's not played much this season. He's played like thirty percent. He's of like a minute, so he's, he's like like a an relief pitcher in 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 baseball. But he's like with a really like weird kooky throw that yeah, only yeah, works just, some of the time. Rotates his entire but yeah, yeah right yeah. yeah. That was my point. Just no no, no I like how strange he is as a player. I like that point. 
I would like to talk about George Mendes now. Yeah. Uh, because it's it's fascinating. And it can't really be done without discussing the ownership scheme as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we said at the beginning, 2016, Fosun International, who are an enormous Chinese company, uh, bought Wolves as part of the, the, the sort of slightly odd West Midlands... Um, uh, it's, if you think about it, it's not that odd. I mean, I, I'm, this, is, this is theory and this is me guessing at it. Well, let's explain what I'm talking about first. Okay, so in a short space of time, uh, West Brom, Aston Villa uh, and Wolves. And Birmingham. Or, and Birmingham City, although Birmingham City had been previously owned. owned exactly. By but West then they were, yeah. but he sold them to another Chinese company. Exactly, to Trillion Trophy Victory, or I, I forget their name. Brilliant Trophy Victory. That, that, what is what is the holding company? Almost certainly because not that. Somebody looked that up because that's not right. But they they they're called something um, which is ironic given Birmingham's situation. Um, but if you look at it, I think what Foson saw was a club with um, unimpeachable history, with a real permanence in English football. One even, of the founding members of the one league, of the founding members, but also someone who who uh, had a, a very, sorry to use the word, but they had a very, very strong brand. Wolves. I mean, um, wolves. Right, there you go. The, like the animal. Secondly, um, they were debt-free when they, they were bought. Uh, I think folks and actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they cost them something like... 45 million. That's it. Something, something insane within the context of... And I think the, that year, Fosun's, uh, Fosun made record profits of £1.3 billion, and they spent £45 million of it on buying wolves. So it's pocket change. Okay. Now, at the same time this happens, a few months after um, the takeover is completed, um, the Premier League announced that um, they have just sold uh, the overseas broadcasting rights to kind of like a, I don't, I don't quite understand it, but it's like, a, it's like an Asian version of a sporting Netflix. Um, cost, it, the deal was done in 2016. I think it, it comes into play in 2019-20, the end of this season. The biggest overseas uh, rights package sold ever. $700 million. Um, just putting that in the context, previously um, an Asian company had spent uh, $200 uh, million on purchasing the rights for La Liga the same period of time. So it's kind of... So Wolves... Like, if, you, if, you, if you put this all into the context of what they thought they were buying, it all makes a lot of sense. That it was in the Midlands, I suppose... It's just interesting in the small in the small area. I think so, but I, but it, it, the Midlands. It, I I I think it just happened to be that there was a cluster of clubs who were established who had not fallen hard times, but had sort of receded in, had sort of fallen back to the kind of the extremity of their potential, and so represented good financial business. And, and Wolves certainly did. Wolves are like a, you know, Wolves are well positioned. I mean, um, three months ago, the Premier League launched their first Chinese specific app. You know, it's a for a Chinese company, what a deal that is, really. It's an interesting point of departure, well, not point of departure, but a, a transition that has now occurred to the sorts of clubs that Chinese investors are looking at, uh, which are almost exclusively port-based clubs. So obviously Southampton uh, here in the, the UK, but across the Adriatic coast, in Italy. as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Why is that? Um, uh, I... I suspect that it's to do with the fact that China is a vast exporter of commodities and also a major player in shipping, and that it effectively curries favour in cities that have um, deep water ports that take in those sorts of things. I suppose that the, the West Midlands has always been an area associated with manufacturing, uh, and in some instances with vehicle manufacturing, the Chinese are big in that. So I think 
Well, also, uh, so I'm sorry to interrupt, but I was thinking we made the video about Sheffield uh, recently. Uh, you know, I think it was titled something like a footballing city underperforming. Yeah, I would say it's it's no coincidence. I imagine you will agree that. Uh, four or five clubs in a small area of the West Midlands were bought by Chinese companies who were all looking to buy at the same time. It's no coincidence, right? I mean, I, I expect what they see is is a region which, but at the time was in, in, in a footballing context, was underperforming, but has a wealth of supporters, a wealth of history, Great, every yes, possible right. opportunity to push back up to the top of the Premier League. Um, because, you know, four, it was four clubs at the time, wasn't it? In, in a short space of time, it's no coincidence. But I also think that China is, or Chinese investors are very canny in the sense that they're not, they're not just looking purely at footballing opportunities. I think what's interesting about a club like Wolves, um, to a lesser extent Southampton, but certainly with Wolves at the time that they were bought, is all very good footballing reasons, but also potentially the opportunity to extend a sphere of influence within a particular area. That's certainly what you're seeing with the port cities where clubs are being acquired there. And China, you know, when I was in Malawi a couple of years ago to visit a footballing academy over there, for example, China have built Malawi's national stadium. And they... That's not uncommon in Africa, is it? Absolutely not. So football, whether it's through the acquisition and ownership of clubs or the creation of infrastructure projects, is a way that China and Chinese investors can project soft power can uh, you know establish themselves as influential within a given area a given region or indeed a given marketplace we got we, i mean one of the things we've got to do is we've got to be careful how we frame this because there's a temptation now and this is absolutely right and everything says but there's temptation now for all of us to sort of to to present football club ownership as a as a strategic enterprise um and to sort of view that as a negative these are just the sort of the, the 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 facts of the game now. This is how ownership works because it it's you know given the sums of money. Um, not if you're Delia Smith. Not if you're Delia Smith. No, but no, if, it's not. I think if an if an owner, I mean, if you look at Wolves and you look at you know, okay, obviously there's there's stuff about the influence of Mendes that we'll come on to and 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 stuff around that which which does bear interrogation. However, in every other respect. Oh, Wolves sure, appears yeah. to be an excellently run football well, club, is, this, and, and there are yeah. there are issues with Chinese owners. You know, there's been a backlash at Den Haag. There have been questions around Haag, the guy that just yeah. Left. And there, there, you know, there are some questions around Southampton, for example, with Ralph Kruger departing. Yep. Why the way that was handled, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I, I think I think you're right to to issue that caveat. Is what I you know what one isn't saying is that just because a Chinese owner comes in, it's basically for other reasons and the footballing side you know it could go like a birmingham city it could but there are plenty of english owners that are awful there are you know it's yeah, it, it's yeah. nothing against that per se i'm just i'm just going to interject here and say uh yes to, to offer some clarity it's it's just interesting i mean like whether whether it's positive or negative we, we withhold an opinion on that the re and you know with with the sort of the, the, the boom of, of uh, Chinese corporations and individuals uh, investing in, in football abroad and also at home, um, it was very interesting because it all pretty much came from one speech from Xi Jinping, who is the Chinese premier, who declared a great interest in football. And the way that business is sometimes done in China is that if you're a company with a lot of money and you want to carry influence with leadership, you follow up on their interests. And we've seen the results of that billow out from this, uh, this initial kind of pebble in the pond. Um, and wolves, wolves are a, a good example of that, but are also an example of a club that 
as we said, they seem to be doing everything right. I mean, there's question marks over how much money they spent when they were in the championship. Had Wolves not secured promotion that year, we could be having a very different conversation now, but they did. And it's looking very, very good. So, I mean, yeah, just that's, again, to address Seb's caveat, there's no negatives or positives here. The reason I raise it is because it was one of the assumptions that I carried with me when I went down there the first time is that, you know, oh, absentee ownership, you know, what's it, what, you know, the owner's approaching something, an investment from what it can do for them and and specifically that. When I spoke to Tom, Tom, who I mentioned earlier, he talked about Jeff Shee, who who is the sort of, he's executive chairman and he's kind of like the the point guy uh, for Fosun there. Um, and he said that actually um, the interaction with the fans is far better than it was than during under the Steve Morgan era. Um, she has been, um, you know, she's been known to drink with, with fans in the pub. Um, there's also a story that Harry Redknapp tells about him, which may or may not be true because it's Harry Redknapp. He says that he, um, he turned up when he was Birmingham manager, he turned up to, to watch a reserve game with Wolves on the under 23 game maybe. And uh, he said that um, there was a, an Asian guy running around collecting the ball when it went out and throwing it back to players to take throw-ins and it was Jeff Shee. Just loves the game apparently. Um, and so there is a sense that there are, there are two different, different ways to do ownership. Like whatever your, whatever your overarching ambition is, there is still the capacity to either be a, right, well, this is our club and we're going to do what I want. But then there's this layer of kind of interaction with the community and this kind of... Um, you know, we, yeah, everyone's going to approach this with a certain degree of um, skepticism, naturally. But in this instance, what it looks like is an ownership um, group who understand what football is to the community and are at least showing the intention to, um, to get involved in that. And that's very, very, very important. And Wolves are doing that right. And it's interesting that when they were promoted for, I think, you know, partly because of how they performed on the pitch, but also because of that sense of momentum and of something being well run. I didn't really see anybody talking about them as potential relegation candidates. And generally speaking, when clubs get promoted, they are always factored into the discussion about relegation. Well, Cardiff weren't far behind Wolves in the promotion season. No, but there was, just, there was just something about... I suppose a style about, difference between those two teams that made one look definitely a much, big stylistic more, difference. Uh, yeah. much more suited to but, Premier League but, life. But there was, you know, th- there was also just a sense that this was a club that was going places and, and that that manifested in terms of the way the coaching was done, player acquisition, style on the pitch. You know, they have a clear identity. Every, from, from the perspective of somebody who looks at those sorts of things, which I do, Wolves tick all of the boxes in a way that, that other clubs weren't doing. You know what's interesting, Alex, is like when they came up and Nevers was there, like one of the assumptions was maybe he'll stay for a Premier League season, maybe not. You know, he's there to be flipped like a, you know, an asset. Now you look at it and you think, if I was Ruben Nevers, would I actually want to leave? Like you, you, you're, you're, you're a starter in this side who are, you know, going to, hopefully finish in the, in the top half of the table and, you know, with a, a bit of smart investment over the summer could realistically be a threat for the Euro- European places. Now, why would you, and this, this speaks to how much ground has been covered in the past 12 months, why would you abandon that for, okay, he's going to cost an awful lot of money for a side, but would you, really, would you really leave this behind now at this stage in your career? Probably not. Like, money talks in football, we know this, and if someone comes in and offers him 300 grand a week, okay, but from a playing and player development perspective, it'd be crazy to leave Wolves. Yeah, he's got everything going for him. The, the, the side stylistically is in part built around him. I mean, I would say him and Conor Cody are the two crucial progressive passes in that team. Um, 
mid-tenure. The, the, Not progressive, but in a, in a sort of temperament sense. Yeah. Um, tone. And, and you know, if, if you're a young Portuguese midfielder, then having a player like Martinho playing effectively alongside you or slightly ahead of you, you like you couldn't ask for more than that. Um, it's a heavily Portuguese-influenced club. A lot of the acquisitions come from that league. The coach is Portuguese. Like, everything is set up for him to succeed there. And short of Man City coming in for a bid of, you know, 80 million to buy him, which is entirely plausible because they are looking for a Fernandinho replacement. And he can play that role. He could play that role. Um, I think he'd have to adapt a bit defensively, but he certainly is in the conversation there, sensibly in the conversation, unlike a lot of other people. Um, That, you know, it doesn't make sense for him to move um, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, well, let's go back to George Mendes. and let's tie, tie it into the point that we were making. The, the reason that George Mendes is even a, a discussion here is because there is some ag- ambiguity around his, his role at Wolves. So let, let's, let's put this into context. The reason it's a conversation is because it is against the rules for a player agent uh, to run the transfer affairs mm-hmm. of a football club. To be a de facto sporting director. Yeah. And so this this is why there's there's some question marks around his involvement. It's not because of any sort of massive conspiracy. It's it's because it's just against the rules. Well, it's also because um, uh, Faison have a well, not Faison directly, but through a um, an affiliated company have a stake in George Mendes' yeah. agency. That that well, there's a, there's a, and there's a, there's a genesis to that as well. I think George Mendes. Um, uh, I think it was James Montague who wrote this wrote this uh, TIFO video for us. Go, go back and, and watch it if you're interested. But James Montague describes George Mendes as a, a bit of a not well, essentially implies that he's an opportunist in this in the sense that he was around at the right time. Yeah. And uh, obviously, uh, as a result of what we were discussing before, Chinese businesses and individuals are interested in in football in Europe in a way that they weren't previously. George Mendes is there to advise those people um, where to spend their money. And so he did that for a while on behalf of uh, of um, Fosun and various other companies. And as Seb then said, what followed was uh, an associated company then buying a stake in George Mendes's company, and then George Mendes's relationship with Wolves, which is owned by Fosun. And there's a weird kind of circle there, which as the 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 the, the FA have said, Football League investigated it and yeah. found no wrongdoing. They found no wrongdoing. Yeah. yeah. You know, Nuno was his Nuno Espirito Santo was his first ever yeah. deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's mad. Yeah, so th- there's all of these little connections yeah. all over the place uh, that make it that make it well that make it a, a, a sort of interesting story. And particularly when you see the success of Wolves, the success as you mentioned of their transfer policy, you can't think of uh, bar one perhaps a player who hasn't succeeded. I think what's important for the sake of context is I, I like everybody else, I approach this with a kind of eyebrows down mentality. But when you think about it. Like Wolves is the difference between Wolves now and the many instances in which agents have um, informally influenced transfer activity in the past. This is nothing new. It's just, it's just, it's more public. There are like, I'm not going to name them because that potentially get us into trouble, but there are so many clubs who like to deal specifically with a, you know, at best a small group of agents and where, right, read Kevin Keegan's book about, his time, his second period at Newcastle and about how the club interacted with, um, with particular agents and the kind of the favours that they were willing to do under sort of Mike Ashley's little crew of, 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 of Cockney Mafia. Um, you know, but it's just, it's like, you know, people, people, people uh, hammer walls with this. But in reality, if no one's found any wrongdoing, it's very, very smart. 
it may not be what everyone likes, may not be our sort of traditional George idea. George Mendes how, claims he's just advising, which he could be. If I, if, if, if I had a lot of money and I was a Premier League football owner, I think I'd want George Mendes in my corner too. I mean, presumably there's a conflict of interest, right? Which is why it's against the rules. Until someone proves it. Until, the, it, theoretically, yes. Like, I, I understand the conflict of interest argument. But well, also, we're not saying they've done the thing wrong. No, exactly. But, but it'd be, you also have to be a realist. You have to appreciate sort of Wolves are not the first club um, to rely on the influence and contact book of an agent. And I think a lot of fans make that mistake. It's just this weird, willful naivety. We think, well, my club just, you know, they, they go into the transfer market like they do on Football Manager and be like, I'll have that guy and whoever the agent is. It's just not how it works. Never been how it works. And, and, you know, there's, there's instances, for example, Ravel Morrison is quite clear on one yeah. of the reasons that he left yeah. West Ham was because of... A, Mark you know, Curtis and Sam Allardyce. Right. And, yeah. and, and that, that to me seems, if, if Morrison's account is to be believed to be far more poisonous. I mean, ultimately, this is, you know, a, a football agent is, is effectively a, a headhunter and a middleman, right? So it's exactly the same as any company going to the same recruitment agency and using them to staff all of their chief executives. If it were outside of football, well, when it is outside of football, no one really bats an eyelid. And I think if, if I had, you know, like Seb's saying, if, you know, if I were running a Premier League club and I wanted to ensure that I had a, a good suite of players and that I was able to work with somebody who had those connections and also has a track record of you know, helping to facilitate the acquisition of players who are of an extremely high quality, those players are delivering on the pitch. It's not like you can look at Wolves really and say, you know, oh, so-and-so's been a dud. You know, these guys are doing very, very well. So There are actually very few duds. I mean, mm. there are players who suited championship football more than Premier League football when you look back through their transfer record. But there are very few instances where you, you look at a player and think, that's a weird deal. I mean, certainly like, you know, I, I can name a few from the Premier League's past where you think, yeah, why was that done? I don't, I don't get the sense of any of that. With it's Wolves. much more the case that you look at the, the, those deals, particularly with Neves, and perhaps at the start of the season with someone like Rui Patricio, and think, you know, why have they come to Wolves? And I think maybe that's the question, is actually that, that there is still a slightly pejorative view that, that Wolves don't deserve to sit, not necessarily at the top table, because they're not at the top table and they won't qualify sixth. You know, they, it's impossible for them to finish six pretty much, I think, or, or yeah. is actually impossible. But they're definitely, they deserve to be in the next bracket down. And just because they were recently promoted, you know, I think, I think there's a way sometimes of, of looking at those sorts of acquisitions and going, well, there, there must be something bent in that. Well, this because is, why this would someone thing. really good want does it, to does go it, to Does it say something about football that if we look at a Seb's least favourite word project, mm. uh, like Wolves, and we see that there's clear thought behind it, that there are very few duds as far as transfers go, that the coach has been, uh, has been well found and is doing a very good job and there's a lot of consistency in the way they play and they're doing great. And we look at that and technical director think, loves the formation that, right, and, that and so Santo uses. The so plan is working. Yeah, and exactly. then we look at it and go, something's bent there. It's all going too well. This, going this too is well. a symptom of modern fandom, Joe. Yeah. It's kind of like where, where you see a club rise there is always envy. And when there is envy, there's a need to kind of invalidate another fan base's, want of a better word, joy. It's like, if something's happening, then, and the thing is, no one wins this game of like, of, of kind of, if we're, if we're playing a I'd big like game I'd like to see of, someone do that with Norwich. Yeah, but, well, but if we're playing a game of football morality, like, okay, so I'm a Tottenham fan, right, well, the owner of my club uh, lives in tax exile. So really, who am I to criticise Club B or Club C because there is another thing which I do not like, or which, according to my own value system, 
is not quite how, quote, football should be. Again, though, put yourself in the shoes of a Norwich fan. <laughs> well, you, 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 okay, but it's, it's, it's all relative, isn't it? So the, the idea that kind of the, the, this sort of um, elusive football purity exists is nonsense. It's gone. It's over. No matter how much we all hate it, football is not like it was 30 years ago. You know, clubs are not run purely on the sporting aims anymore. There is always an agenda because that's how business works. And whether we like it or not, football is a business now. And it's it's sad, but it's But I, I also think the point about fans is is valid um, because, you know, a lot of these you know, media in some regards is responsive to what fans are saying and, and, and agendas that fans are pushing. And you see so much, I mean, look, I wasn't, I wasn't alive in the 70s, but I wasn't following football in the 80s and early 90s particularly either. So I don't know how much has changed. However, it seems like an awful lot of energy is directed, particularly on social media, towards just slagging another club off, you know, and people seem to expend a huge amount of energy and effort in that. And in the short term view of football fans, particularly of this generation, the sort of social media, digital generation, you know, who are wolves? That those fans aren't going to remember people like, you know, Stan Cullis and going back to the You're European right. Cup yeah. games and, you know, the fact that Wolves, it's the same with Huddersfield, you know, a Huddersfield Wolves, Preston North End, these are clubs with immense heritage. Portsmouth won two FA Cups on the bounce in the 50s, 51, 52, you know, but that doesn't matter to, to any of these people. So they see a club like that and they think, well, you know, there must be something awry here because who are Wolverhampton Wanderers? Well, look, as, as we say, rubbish, at the root really. of these things, though, you know, and, and, and Seb touched upon the sort of the conflict there. You're absolutely right. Modern football does, doesn't work in the same way that it used to. There are business interests. There is an agenda, you know, and that makes sense. But the, the, the problem is there's, there's a natural discomfort with that for fans. Um, and I think, you know, I was thinking before when we were talking about... Um, about uh, hidden motives behind things. I was thinking a m member of my family, for example, works for a city firm. That city firm spend a lot of money on uh, a missing persons charity. And of course, when I have a conversation with him about it, there's two sides to that. The one side is that it's great for the company because it makes them look good and philanthropic and there's a cynicism behind it. At the same time, it's a great thing for the charity and it's a great thing for the people who work for the company paying for the charity because it makes them feel like they're doing something useful and they are doing something useful. There's, there's a strange conflict in that, which I think is, I find unsettling. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's, it's probably, it causes most of the sort of confused rejection of modern capitalism, because that conflict exists everywhere, particularly when you touch industries and areas like sports or like charity or like arts, for example, because you can't have one thing without the other in the wider system. And it's, it's very uncomfortable. I think kind of, I think one of the one of the problems is is a lot of these arguments are made by well, people of my age, people who don't remember a different time. And there's this weird, nostalgic and rose tinted view of what football used to look like and the kind of the role that owners used to play. Now, from a lot of the accounts I've read, owners owners were benefactors. Yes, they're often local businessmen who'd made good, but at the same time, they're also people that were in it for ego, sometimes in it for their own profile. And ultimately, at the at the, at the basic level, look at the conditions that those owners allowed their fans to watch the games in like stadiums were death traps quite literally in some cases and so this view that kind of all oh, the ultimate evil is an absentee owner or, or an owner who wants to achieve something other than than seventh place in the premier league it's 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 not nonsense i understand the emotional response to it but it's naive it's a kind of like all oh, things were just much much better then 
Well, do you think the fact that the owners that we're talking about now are Chinese plays into this at all? I mean, probably with some people because that's the country we live in now. But I think enough examples, you know, would you rather have an Asian owner or, or an American owner or Mike Ashley? I'll go with anyone but Ashley. It, it's that kind of stuff. Like, I think, unfortunately, our country does, it is becoming increasingly xenophobic. I don't want to get political, but, you know, you, you can't make a, you can't say that the, the sort of the, the, the collective attitude is defined by one thing. I think there are, you know, small minorities who are, you know, sadly um, uh, sensitive to, to things like that and who, who, who retaliate against them, unfortunately. But I don't know. I, I think it's just a kind of, I think it's a general case of it's not how it used to be. Yeah. I, um, I, I, and I would, that's just, that's a, that's a kind of collective illness that. I agree with all of that. And I think that that the, the rose tinted perspective colours everything, the judgment. I mean, it's not just football. It's, it's all of this kind of stuff that where life the same kind of tropes play in um and you know like seb said it's it's irrespective of of nationality you know that for the the glazers have done some good and some bad at man united john henry's done almost exclusively good at liverpool randy lerner you know mm-hmm. so <laughs> you can pick three american owners and see wildly differing There's results no correlation the, really. the simple fact is that some people are good at running a football club as a business yeah. and some people aren't. And some people understand that to their fan group, a football club, while needing to be run well as a business, is also more than that. Delia. And it doesn't matter at all. I don't want to keep crowbarring Delia. I mean, you literally to get do. To, to, to talk about Norwich. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's completely irrespective of where that person is from. And there are numerous examples. All you have to do is read any biography of Brian Clough to hear numerous examples of, of chairman acting willfully irresponsibly or based entirely in ego. And, you know, these are the sort of quintessential bowler-hatted English working-class done good factory owner types. Well, well that pro- property was always valuable. Be. I mean, even when football began in the 1800s, uh, property was valuable. Yeah, and, and, and football is, you know, it's a way of establishing yourself as a benefactor in a community. You know, if you run a factory and you've got your workers on a pittance and you want to appear to be a nice person while still keeping your workers in abhorrent conditions, buy the local football club and, and you can do or that. Or start the local football club, which incidentally is how many football clubs in Britain started. Right. Or Well, uh, yes. I mean, I think quite a lot started as charities to counteract that and were then taken over. But, you know, this is the issues around the ownership of of massive and important cultural artifacts that exist in densely populated areas is not a new thing. No, I just I I, I have a real problem with the kind of like uh, I understand that there's there's a, a a commercial exploitation of um fans now, but I this it frustrates me that it's perceived as this new thing where you know there there was, there was a time thirty forty years ago apparently when you know there was this great benevolence towards fans. It's just not true. It is just not true. Like you, you know, what mattered to owners was, you know, getting people through turnstiles. The conditions they encountered when they got in there were completely incidental to a lot of these men. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Like, and this sort of, you know, the the attitude of owners towards, you know, the footballing population, i.e., the players and the managers, is actually better now than it was then. I and mean, like, when 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 Bill Shankly retired, they Liverpool wouldn't allow him to join the board. The same with Jock Steen at Celtic. Like. There was a kind of there was a serfdom in place. There was a much more rigid kind of social them and us thing going on then than there was now. So a lot of this stuff now, I understand it. I understand the frustrations and 
with with cost because those are all really valid and really important arguments. But it was not a oh look at all the the sort of look at how bad evolution has been. It's it's not really true. And there's also or it's selectively true. There's a big difference between complaining because you're a Blackpool fan, for example, yeah. and complaining because you're a Man United fan who doesn't like the fact that you spent however many millions on you Pogba. only get a 50 million pound player instead right. of 80 million so you know i yeah. think again there there's just like with all of the stuff we've discussed before that there there are very very cogent and sensible fan criticisms of appallingly run clubs like bolton wanderers or blackpool and then there are fans bitching because their club hasn't spunked enough money on the guy that you know they saw a four minute youtube highlights clip of sure. it's, a little, it's a little bit more complicated that than that with but the Blazers, it, it is but, 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 yeah. but, 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 but what Alex is, is saying is is a it's a very valid point there's this kind of like there's this weight um against uh you know there's sort of the weighted sort of validity about how things were and it's just like the way things are now is like every every every, every fan base's grievance is is sort of is relative but there are it doesn't take much to kind of frame your own irritations with a Bolton with a Blackpool I, you know, it's it, it's irritating. And also, I think people just like to whinge. They do like to whinge. I think yeah. people really like to get onto Twitter and sound off. We've we've teetered into something now. We've no, stayed on should, this topic we, we should, for too we, long. We should isolate this and release it as its own, like a kind of post-watershed, you know. <laughs> Listen, I'm with the whingers. I don't know what you guys are talking about. You are you are a classic whinger. Though. I'm a classic whinger. Yeah. I don't whinge, though. I moan. You love a whinge. No, yeah, a, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. more of a moaner. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I'm not going to... I don't want to hide the fact that I'm moaning in a whinge. I will just outright moan. Yeah. I, to me, a whinge and a moan is just sort of, it's like a difference of register. It's a different... A whinge, is, a, a whinge is simply done in a higher voice. A, no, a whinge, is, a whinge is already defeated. A whinge is... There's, it, more, it, there's uh, more futility to a yeah, whinge. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. a whinge is something you do if you know the, your whinge isn't going to do anything. You just... See, I'd stick a moan in with that as well. Um, no, no, a moan is I could be moaning at you, and there could something could happen. I mean, you do regularly, and it regularly it regularly happens. Something yeah, something happens. I don't listen to it. Mm. Well, you listen. We've we've got. No, to... I wouldn't say you moan it as a as an impartial. This is boring to listen. I think you now. snipe at each other. You don't moan what? or whinge. You you take shots at each other in a kind of like. You say something quite snarky, but you always smile as you say it. It's Alan, all Alan, beneath Alan, the surface. Smiling isn't really in your. Repertoire. Someone said recently on Twitter that I, I, I looked very grumpy, but I had a good soul. That's just... <laughs> it's a shame for you that souls don't exist. It's we need to get back to thing anyone's ever do, said about me. This is, this is boring. boring. Yep. Um, uh, apologies to Wolves fans who don't know who we are and will never listen to a podcast again. Uh, we're here for you. Uh, Wolves, the final, th- <laughs> the final thing to, to, to ask, I suppose... Um, and, and Seb, you made the cogent point at the beginning of this podcast that we're not sure entirely when people will be listening to this. No, so no. let's consider this uh, season as, as done, wherever Wolves finish. We anticipate the top half of the table. Um, what do you do in the summer to move on to next season? How do you improve? Because you're, you're reaching that ceiling. Yep. That, and, and we know the gap currently, as it stands, is over 10 points, I think, between six and seven. Yep. There's a big ceiling there. How do you try and bridge that? Because even clubs like Everton have been unable to do that in the last 10, 15 years. The, the, the first way to approach it is not to try and bridge it. It's not to say, what do we need to be in the top six? Because that is a, that's a very rocky road. That's the Everton road. But Tottenham did it. Tottenham did it, but Tottenham didn't do it with a big, aggressive transfer policy. They did it with a change of culture. 
and wolves are in the midst of a change of culture and it's you know it, they're reaping dividends from it um i think on a literal level i think there are a couple of needs in the team i was a little bit surprised that they they that that Jimenez's deal was made permanent so early because to me Jimenez has done great um i'd say he's a very good rather than an excellent forward um he does a lot of things really well like he he, he works very hard he, he's got a goal against um Cardiff a few weeks ago which kind of sums him up won the ball on the left hand side lovely little ball into Yota and you know scored off the knockdown I wouldn't say he's an outstanding finisher I, I think he's a little bit unreliable um, so I'm expecting I'm expecting a headliner to come in um, you know also because that tallies with what, what's happening with, with Chinese broadcasting I think that's a, you know it's a, an interesting little facet of that the right side of that side, I think. Just sorry to interrupt. Yeah. When you say a headliner, do you mean uh, do you mean in the striking area? No, I mean in a generally like a top class footballer, and I think it will Anywhere be on the pitch. Not necessarily on the pitch. I, I think they need another centre half. Um, I think the right side is a little bit. Um, I think Doherty's done tremendously well. I think you can improve in his area of the pitch. Um, I think Bennett's getting on a bit. As that's well. the thing, Bennett. I, I'd say again, done brilliantly. None of this is supposed to be. Um, it's supposed to disparage the efforts of the team that, you know, have performed this season. They've, they've done great. But there are players... I had a look through, um, through George Mendes's uh, stable of clients, and there's some interesting players. For instance, like, uh, you know, uh, Nelson... Is that, is that how we, uh, is that how no, we no, estimate it's, it's, Wolves, this is what Wolves, Wolves would have been doing. So. But this is... It, why wouldn't you do that? Like, why would you, yeah. not, why would you not look at, for instance, Nelson Semedo's situation at Barcelona, where he's not getting a lot of game time, he's not particularly happy, and you think, you put him as the right side of the wing back, all of a sudden you look like a, a you know, a slightly better side. Sure. Um, center halves is a, is a little trickier, but you know, there are, if you were to add, you, if you had sort of a uh, Bowley, Cody and plus one as an alternative or a um, variation on Bennett, that's interesting too. Um, the midfield looks great, but eventually you're going to have to look at Jean Martinho's age. Um, so what do you do this summer? Do you look at a kind of a developing player and give him a sort of, you know, uh, you know, 10, 15 games next season and try and ease that transition? Do you also look at your bench? Because we've, we've talked about Adama Traore a little bit in this, during this podcast, and we're not picking on him, but Wolves could have more from their bench. Um, so what are, what are your impact subs? What, do you, what can you add there to change the game? Because sometimes... For instance, Wolves have done brilliantly against top six sides this season, but less so against sides they really should beat. Um, I mean, nobody should be losing to Huddersfield, for instance, respectfully. Huddersfield do not belong in the Premier League, um, and that was one of the poorer results. I, I also, uh, Alex is not going to like this, I thought they were pretty disappointing against Southampton. Um, I, think hey, I loved far- it. Yeah, of course you did, but I, they are a far superior side to Southampton. Oh, um, that's the bit I don't like. The, but they are. And, and, and so like, you, you look at kind of, right, what do we do to have to cure these sort of, you know, these games which we should win and we drop points in and which really separate us from being, from having seventh place completely locked up now. What, it shouldn't, the question for Wolves this summer should not be, how do we overtake Chelsea and Spurs and Arsenal? Because those are not realistic games at the moment. They are within the kind of a five-year period potentially. They're also looking at um, expanding Molyneux, so that becomes a you know another thing. Um, Molyneux, Molyneux, very nice. Um, the question should be: How do we separate ourselves from Watford? How do we make sure we stay ahead of Everton? How do we? How do we within our own little section of the league? 
How do we become the preeminent force? That's the question. Not nothing at this stage. Nothing more than that. Don't okay. overreach. Do you have anything to add, Alex? Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Um, Even the contentious Southampton bit. Apart from that bit, <laughs> um, I think there are there are a couple of points to note. I mean, they they uh, according to who scored, Wolves have only used nineteen players in the Premier League this season, which is very very few. They are they are consistent in the the selection of their first eleven partly because that's sensible and partly because it is so system driven but you do wonder whether that is also restricted by the lack of options the other thing i'd note is that while the age profile of a lot of those players is quite good there's not much coming through so apart really from morgan gibbs white who's played a bit but not very much ruben venegra is a, a kind of stand-in left back left wing back who's 20 ish i think he's exactly 20 yes he is exactly yeah, 20 yeah. Um, you're not seeing young players getting on and getting any minutes at all, let alone really getting starts. Um, so I, I would see that as an area of concern because you don't ultimately want a squad entirely based in George Mendes' Portuguese acquisitions. You know, I think one of the strengths of Wolves, particularly in the championship promotion season, was blending people who'd been there quite some time with these new let's be honest mostly better players um and so i think putting a bit more of an emphasis on youth development trying to get some more time for some of those you know there will be one or two talented youngsters there gibbs white looks decent Gibbs white's a very very good player so you know where do we fit those in do we again exactly like seb was saying about jean moutinho you know do you start to try and find a couple of younger english players maybe that you can bring through an academy or and start giving minutes to maybe look for players who aren't getting time at, at bigger clubs and, and acquire some of those. There's room to do this as well. Like I'm, I'm looking down the list at the moment and it surprised me a little bit. Wolves have used um, 19 players in the Premier League this season. One of those, uh, Leo Bonatini, is not at the club anymore. Two of those obviously are goalkeepers. So 16 outfield players in a 38-game season. There is room in that. Um, there's probably room... Uh, for me, Helder Costa and even Cavalera aren't quite, they're good enough players and they belong in the Premier League, but they don't belong in the part of the Premier League that Wolves hope to occupy, really. So there's room here to kind of, to bring in, you know, guys that are going to play at the moment 10 to 15 games. And I think also Wolves are operating from a, from a, a position of strength. They are a great sell. Well, it, well, at Molyneux, it must be great to play at Molyneux. It's like one of the most atmospheric grounds in the country got Led Zeppelin playing before games and they got West Country Communion going. You know, it, no, no fireworks anymore. Apparently someone got um, hit by one of the pre-match fireworks a couple of months ago. Goodness me. I don't think that's quite as bad as it sounds, but that's why they've stopped doing it. It always sounds very bad. Though, yeah, getting hit by fireworks is never good. But I've seen those Harry Potter videos, you know, where the, uh, they have the soundtrack of the, the Harry Potter movies and then they have a video of people sort of holding fireworks and, and pretending they're wands and shooting Spell fireworks. Just me. I don't think that's what happened. Just me. But there was, uh, this was hearsay. I heard it from someone in the press box. But it's a. If you're, you're saying a, they weren't playing the Harry Potter soundtrack, they, they were not. Do, I think they were playing. Right. Um, it's a different thing, guys. They were playing it's a different thing. song or something. Or, or like, um, <laughs> yeah, a Black Country Communion, not West Country Communion. I'm sorry about that. Black Country Communion. Probably Stairway to Heaven with a firework. No, they don't play Stairway to Heaven. A which little is, firework, though, up on the, up on the way. I'd say that Stairway to Heaven doesn't quite have the... The opening section doesn't quite have the pace to go with fireworks. It's a bit slow. Um, so what a sell. What, 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 a, what a... Again, I'm going to use it. But what a project you're selling to a young player. Come here. 
Look at the example of not only Nevers, but Yotta. Yotta is 21, 22. Look at his reputation now compared to what it was. You know, look at what you can be at, at Wolves as a Wolverhampton Wanderers player, not just another Premier League t- team, a Premier League team that are actually one of the few that are actually mobile and upwardly mobile. It's a, you, it's a great pitch. Um, and that's that, you know, whatever, whatever role Mendes has in it, it's still the same reality. As a young player, do you want to overreach and play for Manchester City or Chelsea or something like that? Probably not. But do you want to go to this club? Absolutely. It's a, they're in a very good position. Great. Okay, well, that was a, that's a lovely, lovely ending there, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um, thank you so much to everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Next week, there will be, it was pre-recorded actually, but an interview uh, that Alex and I conducted with a writer, author, journalist, tactics guard, uh, Jonathan Wilson, which was um, a lot of fun for us to do. And the week after that, um, I'm, I'm away on holiday, but Seb and Alex will be joined by John McKenzie to talk about uh, Marcelo Bielsa. And that will be as part of Bielsa Week at TIFO, which if you imagine a shark week like they have on that telly in America, but it, no sharks, replace sharks with Bielsa, and that's what it is. Uh, so that'll be at the end of that week. Um, and we'll, we'll remind you again next week, but uh, that podcast will be coming out on the Friday of that week rather than the Tuesday. Um, other than that, do become a TIFO Football YouTube channel member. It's... Pr- you know, probably worth it, probably not, but do it anyway. And uh, also watch our videos and any other, you know, anything else? Anything else no, I've you've, really, you've, you've really sold it. You've, you've, you, the, yeah, you've, you've, you've sold yeah. the bollocks out of that. Do or don't, but uh, thanks for listening. See you later.